Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do confess that day by day, with each passing moment, and into all eternity, you are God. And Lord, now as we come to your word, in the book of Nehemiah, we pray that we would approach it not as any human word, Lord, not like we would approach any other book in the entire world. But Lord, we pray that we would come to it knowing that it is the living, active, powerful, authoritative word of the God who created us. And Lord, we thank you that you, our creator, are for us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that your word proclaims him to us. So would you help us to respond this morning in faith? Would you help us to trust your goodness? And would you help us to, even in the week ahead, live faithfully as your people in accordance with all your promises? And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, writes about something that he calls the Stockdale Paradox. It's one of the factors that he uses to identify companies, businesses that have gone from being merely good to being great. The name Stockdale comes from Jim Stockdale. He was an admiral in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam War. And he was captured and ended up spending eight years as a POW in a prisoner of war camp in Hanoi, Vietnam. And Stockdale, during this period of eight years of imprisonment and torture and everything else that went with it, watched many of his uh, companions, many of his dear friends, lose hope in the midst of this torture, in the midst of the imprisonment, and many of them ultimately died. Stockdale was interviewed years later, looking back on this time of imprisonment, this eight years as a POW, and he said something very interesting, very ironic about the men who gave up hope and died during the imprisonment. He said it was the optimists, the optimists who ultimately gave up hope and died. In other words, it was the men who would look around and say, it's all right, we'll be out by Christmas. Those men lost hope. Stockdale, on the other hand, Admiral Stockdale never lost hope. He clung to an unshakable resolve that he would prevail in the end, that he would make it out alive. But he also refused to give in to a false sense of optimism. So a Pollyanna-like, everything's going to be all right, we're going to be out by Christmas. In fact, he would say, no, we probably won't be out by Christmas, but we will prevail in the end. And so Jim Collins, in this book, Good to Great, sums up what he calls the Stockdale Paradox in this way. He says to companies, to businesses, you must retain faith that you will prevail in the end regardless of your difficulties and circumstances, but at the same time, you must be willing to confront with brutal honesty the reality of your current situation. That's the Stockdale paradox. Well, as we begin a series together this summer in the book of Nehemiah, we come to a period of Israel's history where God's people are in the midst of a brutal reality, extremely difficult circumstances. Jerusalem, this once proud city of God, lies in ruins, as we'll see in just a few moments. But this entire book and this passage that we'll look at this morning is going to tell us clearly 
that God's people in every age can confront the brutal reality of living in a fallen world with utter confidence and hope that God's good plan, His eternal promise, will continue. It will not fail. Well, just a word on where this book uh, falls in terms of the whole storyline of the Bible. Uh, Those of us here at College Church love talking about the Bible as one story. It is one unified story of God's work of redemption in the world. And here in Nehemiah, we find ourselves after the exile. God's people have been sent away. They're coming now back to the land to rebuild. And the key point of Nehemiah is that in this rebuilding, in this restoration of the land, God is using this man, Nehemiah, at this point in history to help his people endure so that 400 years after Nehemiah, God can bring his own son into the world, into the land of Israel as a Jewish baby to grow up, to die on a cross for sinners and to rise again from the dead. So a very key point in the overall storyline of the Bible in the book of Nehemiah as we see God preserving his people. Well, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 1, verses uh, 1 through 11, and I'm going to give you three words that will kind of guide us through this chapter this morning. So you may want to grab a pen or a pencil and just jot these down. They'll help you follow along as we move through this chapter. The first word is circumstance. Circumstance. So we'll look at Nehemiah's circumstance and then our circumstances today. The second word is confidence. So we'll see how this passage shows us how a man like Nehemiah in the midst of this brutal reality could have utter unshakable confidence in who God is and what God will do for his people. And then the last word is constant because this passage will end with just a little reminder that God's work in Nehemiah's time in our days is constant. He is constantly at work. So circumstance, confidence, constant. So first of all, the circumstance. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1. And I'll read verses 1 to 3, Nehemiah's situation. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Shislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So what's Nehemiah's circumstance? Well, Nehemiah is a Jew, a Jewish man living in Susa, the capital of Persia. Persia would be the world power at this time. They have conquered Babylon Babylon was the world power about 140 years earlier. They had taken God's people out of Judah into exile, into the land of Babylon, but now Persia is in power. Uh, We're probably reading in chapter 1 events that take place in 446 B.C. So 140 years after the exile of Judah into Babylon, which was in 586, and then 70 years have now gone by since exiles began to return from Babylon to the land of Judah. So 70 years, there's been these waves of exiles coming back into the land of Israel. But Nehemiah, still in Persia, greets some relatives, at least one relative, a group of men from Jerusalem, and he asks them, how's the homeland doing? How's Jerusalem doing? And he receives this report, this very sad report from his relatives and friends. It's a report of trouble and shame, 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. The whole city really is a place of rubble and ruin. And I want us to understand why this report would have been so bad. Why would this have been so discouraging to Nehemiah? And on the surface level, we can begin to identify with hearing a bad report about a place that's near and dear to our hearts. Um, I grew up in Wheaton. Some of you know that. I lived in the same house for about 16 or 17 years. And my, my folks moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee during my freshman year of college. Uh, but I remember there were a few points during my college years and even the years after when I would, uh, in my car, circle around my old neighborhood and drive by the house where I had spent all those years growing up as a boy. A little bit of a sentimentality. My wife gives me a hard time about this. Um, but driving through this house, I grew, uh, driving by the house I grew up in and remembering all the good memories there. And you can imagine, and some of you can identify with this, what it would be like if I drove around that cul-de-sac and saw the house where I grew up lying in a heap of rubble. Someone had torn it down and was preparing to build a newer, nicer house on that same plot of land. Uh, it wouldn't crush me. I wouldn't probably sink into a deep and dark depression. It wouldn't affect me deep, in a deeply spiritual way. But there would probably be an emotional response to seeing this home that you grew up in in a pile of rubble. And in fact, after the 930 service, there was a woman who came up to me and said, I know exactly what you mean. Um, The house that we lived in for 30 years, my daughter got married in that house. The people who bought it just tore it down and they're building a new house and I can't even drive down that street anymore. (laughs) Um, so anyway, there, there can be an emotional response, I think, that, that Nehemiah has at this point as he hears this bad news about his homeland. And yet, it's deeper than that. It's not just emotional. There's actually spiritual and theological significance to the discouragement that would come to Nehemiah when he hears this report. Jerusalem had been the central place of God's work in his people and through his people to the the world for centuries. This was the capital city of Israel. It was the place where Solomon had built his glorious temple, the place where God's people worshipped him through sacrifice, through reading of God's word. It was the place of the palace of Solomon and David. So a deeply significant place for God's people and therefore to Nehemiah. One writer, Jim Hamilton, puts it this way. He says, why does Nehemiah care about the wall of Jerusalem that's broken down? Well, he writes this. Nehemiah cares about the wall because the wall will protect the people. Nehemiah cares about the people because God loves them, because God redeemed them and covenanted with them. If there's no wall, the people will be oppressed, which could lead to them being dispersed either because they all flee or because they get carried off as captives. But if there's a wall, they have protection from enemies without and they can enforce and obey the law of God within. So a spiritual and a theological significance to this wall sitting in ruins. It's not just a wall, it's a symbol of the security of God's people. And for Nehemiah, it's a symbol of God's continuing plan and promise to work through his people. And that potentially, that plan potentially being in jeopardy. So Nehemiah, hearing the report of Jerusalem being in ruins, might begin to say, What does this mean for God's plan and his promise to his people? What does it mean, for example, about God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12? Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What does this mean for God's promise? What does it mean for that plan 
Or what does it mean for God's promise to King David? In 2 Samuel 7, David, I will raise up your son after you. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A forever king, a forever kingdom. What of that plan? If Jerusalem sits in ruins. So you can begin to see the spiritual and theological discouragement that might come to Nehemiah as he receives this news. And I want you to think about then your circumstance today. That was Nehemiah's circumstance. I want you to think about the many situations that can tempt us to lose hope in God's continuing work. In our lives as individuals or in the world and all that God is promising to do in his word around the globe. I wonder if this past week a struggle with sin has left you, left you discouraged, left you wondering, will God continue his good plan and his good work in my life? Maybe it's a struggle with doubt. Is, God, is God's grace really enough? Is his plan and his work going to continue in my life? Or maybe it's not personal, individual, maybe it's looking around the world and seeing all of the opposition to the gospel, the places in our world where Satan's seeming to get a foothold, where God's people are opposed, where Christians are persecuted, and you begin to at least be tempted to wonder, is God's plan really going to prevail? Will Jesus really be exalted and every tongue confess that he's Lord? Our circumstances can make us doubt God's plan for his people, including his plan for us as individual people of God. So the circumstances, they're bad for Nehemiah. It's a brutal reality that he's forced to face about God's people and God's place in Jerusalem. Where does he go? How does he react to this circumstance? Well, the next word is confidence, and we're going to look at verses 4 to 11. But before we get into those verses, I want you to see just from verse 4 that the immediate response of Nehemiah, his immediate response to hearing this news about Jerusalem is prayer. His immediate response is prayer. One writer says that Nehemiah responds with prayer that is spontaneous, natural, and immediate. It's like breathing. It's what he naturally does as he receives this news. I was uh, with a group of friends one summer uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where my parents live, and we would bring friends back sometimes from the Chicago area. It's a beautiful part of the country. But there was a group of about eight of us, and we were visiting a place called Little River Canyon, about an hour from my parents' home, uh, actually across the border into Alabama. And it's a beautiful place. It's this crystal clear river running down in between this, this, uh, these two cliffs, big boulders that you can jump off of into the water. Um, the only tricky part is it's, it's a little bit treacherous to climb down toward this river. Um, there's, there's a steep descent, and you have to make your way down very carefully. And at one point, there's about a 10-foot, almost sheer cliff that you have to climb down to get to Little River. And uh, seven of us, uh, seven of the eight, made it down all right, and there was one female in our group trying to make her way down and um, she was having a little bit of trouble. And this is not to imply that females have more trouble climbing. There are a lot of wonderful female climbers. But she was making her way down this, this steep cliff, and she got about maybe six feet off the ground, and she got more and more scared and more and more stressed. 
And then at one point, she finally just froze, and she said, can we just stop and pray? And I have to confess that my first response was to be a little annoyed. (laughs) Um, Can we just not over-spiritualize this? We're all there. We're standing under you. We'll catch you if you fall. You're going to be okay. But then my next response was shame. Because I realized this young, for this young godly woman, in the midst of a maybe somewhat trivial but difficult circumstance, her natural, immediate, spontaneous response was to turn to her God in prayer. That's what Nehemiah does here. Immediate, spontaneous, natural prayer in the midst of difficult circumstances. And ultimately, as we'll see in verse 5 and moving on in the passage, It is a prayer that reveals amazing confidence, amazing confidence in God's plan for his people in the midst of these brutal circumstances. I want you to see, though, and we'll read verse 4, that first he stops to confront the brutal realities that God's people face. He stops to mourn the situation. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah, essentially, before he begins his prayer, stops and he assesses honestly the situation. He mourns it. He does, really, the first part of that Stockdale paradox that we mentioned a few minutes ago. It's not a Pollyanna-like prayer. It's not a trite prayer. It's not a disconnect from reality. He sees it. He mourns it. And it shows us his love for God's people and God's place. But then the prayer begins in verse 5, and there's a few key points that I want you to see here as we ask this question. Nehemiah, in the midst of this situation, has confidence. Why? Why does this man have utter confidence in the midst of these circumstances that he and God's people face? Two reasons. Number one, because of the character of God, and number two, because of the covenant of God. To put it in slightly different words, because of who God is and because of what God has promised to do for his people, his character and his covenant. So first, confidence that comes from the character of God. Let me read verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. What does Nehemiah affirm about the character of God as he begins this prayer? He's great and awesome. He's mighty. He's omnipotent. But he's also a God of steadfast love. That is who God is. This prayer is rooted in a hope in the character of God as a God of love. But I want you to see then that this reminder of God's character, this great and awesome God, a God of steadfast love, immediately leads him to confession. So it reminds him of all the ways that God's people have not loved God and kept his commandments. And that's what he does in verses 6 to 7. He confesses the sin of God's people in light of God's character. Look at 6 to 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules 
that you commanded your servant Moses. So you begin to see Nehemiah admitting the guilt of God's people, even confessing the sin of his own family, and acknowledging the role that God's people have played in the current state of Jerusalem after exile amidst the ruins. And I think this is important for us to see. We've talked about circumstances mainly so far as things that happen to us. And often that is the case. We get cancer. Or we lose a job. Or we have a crisis in our family. Things happen to us. There are brutal realities that we're forced to face that don't have anything to do with our blatant sin. And yet sometimes we face brutal realities that do come because of our sin. And that's certainly the case in this context, where Nehemiah, along with all of God's people, face a brutal reality, this, this awful circumstance, the state of Jerusalem in ruins, that is directly a result of their failure for hundreds of years to listen to the words of God's prophets. Turn from idolatry, stop this violence and oppression of the poor, repent and turn back to God, leave your hypocrisy. Deaf ears from God's people for hundreds of years, and they go to exile, and Jerusalem is now in ruins 140 years after the exile. There's a time to confess. And it could be that given where you are right now, that's the first way that you need to apply this passage to your life in the week ahead. Honest and open confession to a good God who does offer forgiveness through his son Jesus Christ. God's character leads Nehemiah to confession because there's sin that has contributed to the situation. So that's the first source of his confidence in his prayer. It's the character of God. But second, it's the covenant of God. It's the promise of everything that God is going to do for his people. Look at verses 8 to 11 as Nehemiah puts his confidence in the covenant of God. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So you can see Nehemiah looking back to God's words to his people through Moses. And there is this foretelling that God gives the people, if you sin, if you turn away from my commandments, I will scatter you in exile amidst the peoples, amidst the the nations. But there's this promise that God spoke to his people through Moses that when they return, when they repent, he'll bring them back, he'll establish them in the place, and he'll make his name dwell in their midst. He claims that promise on behalf of God's people. One writer puts it this way, He says, Nehemiah knows the threats and the promises of Scripture well enough to make not a tentative, but a strong plea. Let me say that one more time. Nehemiah knows the threats and the promises of Scripture well enough to make a strong, not a tentative, plea. To put it in slightly different words, Nehemiah knows God's word so well 
that the promises of God's Word inform and shape the way He makes His appeal to God in the midst of a difficult situation. I've seen that reality work itself out in uh, my daughter's relationship with me. This, This idea that the promises of God shape Nehemiah's appeal to God. Um, There will be times when we'll be getting ready, our family will be getting ready for a swim lesson on a Saturday morning. And Addie's room, uh, my daughter's name is Addie, she's three and a half, her room will be messy. And so I'll say, Addie, you need to clean up your room, and if you do a good job, I'll give you a fruit snack that you can eat in the car on the way to the swim lesson. Shameless bribery. Um, And so she'll go, and she'll clean her room, and she'll do a good job, and she'll come back down to the kitchen, and we'll be ready to, uh, to go, and almost ready to walk out the door, and she'll stop me and say, Dad, you promised, (laughs) don't forget, that if I cleaned up my room, you would give me a fruit snack. And I'll say, you're right, Addie. But you can see, my promises, which she remembers very well, especially if they have to do with toys or candy, uh, my promises to her shape the way that she makes her appeal to me. And that's a bit what's going on here in Nehemiah's prayer. The promises of God, the covenant of God with his people spoken through Moses, shape the way that he makes his appeal confidently to God. Well, a question for you. Where does your confidence come from? In the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of a brutal reality that you may need to face even this week, where does your confidence come from? I think this passage is telling us that our confidence in the midst of all kinds of circumstances can come from who God is and what he has done. Who God is, his character, that God is a God of steadfast love. In other words, that God in his basic disposition toward us, toward the world he has made, is love. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, if you haven't given yourself to Jesus and said, yes, I'm ready to turn from everything else I'm pursuing and follow him as my Savior and Lord, if you haven't done that yet, let me just tell you that that truth, that God is a God of steadfast love, is the best apologetic or defense of the Christian faith that we can offer you. That the message and the witness of the entire Bible is ultimately that God is for us, for his people, in love. Now he's just. He's holy. He's perfect. And the Bible makes it clear that he will judge sin on the last day. Uh, he's so perfect that he, he can't endure unpunished uh, unrighteousness and violence and corruption. God will judge sin. But he is a God of love and he's proved it in giving his own son to enter the world, to enter a world of sin, to take sin on himself for all who will look to him in faith. And that leads us to the next source of confidence that we can have. Not just who God is, not just his character, but also his covenant. And from our perspective, as we look back at the cross of Jesus Christ, not what God has promised to do, but what God has already done. The covenant, the new covenant, made in the blood of his own son. So Nehemiah has this covenant confidence as he prays, God, I believe your promises, I claim your promises and and believe that you will continue to work out your good plan for your people. We have new covenant confidence as we look back on a cross where Jesus died to pay for the sins of God's people, an empty grave from which Jesus rose from the dead to conquer death forever. 
We have a new covenant confidence in what God has done in Jesus Christ as he fulfilled all of his promises to God's people. And I want to suggest to you that one reason you may not have this kind of confidence in God's good work in your life today is that you might not actually believe these things about God. At the core of your being, do you believe that God is for you in love? With everything that you are, do you believe that God's covenant, his promise made in the blood of his son is enough for you? John Wesley, who was an amazing preacher and minister who traveled all around America preaching the gospel, later in his life looked back on his early years of ministry, years during which he was preaching the gospel, seeing converts come to Christ, And actually said, you know, during those first years of my ministry, I myself was not a Christian. He said, I I went to America to make converts and I myself had not yet been converted. And here's his analysis of the situation. He says, at that point in my life, I knew God as his servant, but not yet as his son. I knew God as a servant, but not yet as a son. What kind of people can have this kind of confidence in God in the midst of circumstances, even circumstances created by our own sin? I want to suggest to you this morning that it is God's children who can have this kind of confidence. Those who know him, not as servants, but as sons and daughters who look to him as father. That's the promise of the gospel. Who look to him like my daughter looks to me and says with utter confidence, Dad, you promised. (laughs) Christians, if you've repented of sin, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can look to God with that kind of confidence. Father, Dad, you promised. And the answer, the promise, comes back from his word in the New Testament. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That promise is good. Covenant confidence. That's what Nehemiah has as he prays. That's what makes this man, this godly man in 446 B.C., look around at the brutal facts of his reality and yet retain amazing faith in who his God is and what his God will ultimately do for his people. He knows him. And he knows him as father. And he claims his covenant promises with confidence. Well, the last word, and and we're going to draw this to a close, the last word is constant. We've looked at Nehemiah's circumstances. Then we've looked at his confidence in God and what God will do in the midst of them. And the final word for today is constant. I think what we get in the final phrase of this passage, the one phrase we haven't read yet, is a little hint. It's a little reminder of the fact that God has been constantly at work the entire time, even in the midst of the brutal circumstances of his people. And let me just read this last phrase from verse 11. The narrator concludes the chapter, Now I was cupbearer to the king. And I like to insert a little parenthetical, Oh, by the way, I was cupbearer to the king. (laughs) In other words, this is no accident. What does that little verse tell us? What does that little phrase tell us? Well, it tells us that God has been at work. Years before Nehemiah even prayed this prayer in chapter 1, God was at work 
strategically, sovereignly, secretly putting Nehemiah in this position as cupbearer to the king of the known world. And those who have done more research on this uh, position than I have would tell us that this would have been a position of immense influence and power, not quite at the level of a king, but because of the close association with the king of Persia, Nehemiah would have been one who received admiration and respect and esteem from the people even of Persia. So the fact that an exiled Jew is in this position as cupbearer to the king of Persia is amazing. It's a work of God. And we'll begin to see next week the way that God will use Nehemiah for his people and for his broken down city of Jerusalem. And by the way, it actually seems like Nehemiah begins to figure this out, doesn't it? At the end of verse 11, look at that verse one more time. He concludes his prayer, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So it seems that Nehemiah, even as he concludes his prayer, is beginning to think, huh, I wonder if my position as cupbearer to the king of Persia might just have something to do with the way that God will answer this prayer. It's as if he begins to have an Esther moment. Perhaps I've been put here for the sake of God's people for such a time as this. And Pastor Todd will will cover that next week as we go ahead to chapter 2. But back to our lives, our circumstances. We've talked about why we can have confidence in God's continuing work and God's plan for you if you're in Christ. Now this passage ends with a hopeful reminder that God's work in your life, in my life, in our lives as a church today is constant. God never sleeps. He never takes a break. He never takes a day off. He is constantly at work to complete the good work that he has begun in you when you put your faith in his son. And on that point, let me just call your attention to one more little detail as we glance ahead to chapter 2. If you'll look back to to verse 1-1, And just note the month. So it says, now it happened in the month of Shislev in the 20th year. And then look ahead to chapter 2, verse 1. And it begins in the month of Nisan. Four months go by between Shislev and Nisan. So Nehemiah prays this great prayer of confident faith in chapter 1 and then waits for four months while Jerusalem sits there in rubble and ruins. And then God begins to answer in chapter 2. So let me just tell you today something that I think this passage is showing us. That in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of your brutal reality that you may face even in the week ahead, God may ask you to wait. Four months? Four years? Maybe even until the day that you see Jesus Christ face to face. And yet as you wait, as you wait and trust God to continue his good plan for you and for his church, you can do it with utter confidence that he will complete the good work that he has begun in you and will one day bring all things under submission to his glorious son. His plan is good, his promise is sure, and we can have utter unshakable confidence that his work is constant. Well, there's another word for this kind of confidence in God, in his word. And that word is faith. Faith. Utter, unshakable confidence in the promises of God's word. 
that Jesus' death is enough for our forgiveness, that his resurrection from the dead guarantees our eternal inheritance with him in heaven, faith. And we're going to end in just a moment by singing this wonderful hymn, By Faith, which reminds us verse by verse that we, as God's people today, share with God's people throughout history who have put their faith in the unshakable, unwavering promises of God. We will stand as children of that promise until the day when we see him face to face. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. And so, Heavenly Father, we see the unshakable, confident faith of Nehemiah thousands of years ago, trusting in the faithfulness of your good promises to your people, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to bring your people together around your word. And Lord, we see how that promise came to full fruition in your son, Jesus. Lord, your word tells us that all your promises are yes in him. And so, Lord, today in the midst of our difficult circumstances, in the midst of whatever brutal reality people in this room have to face in the week ahead, I pray that they would face it with confidence in who you are, in what you have done, and in all that you have promised to do. And, Lord, we pray it for the sake of Jesus and for the good of our hearts and souls. Amen.